So I need to sort of challenge my own diagnosis to make sure that I'm not falling into a trap. So this critical thinking thing is really important. Hello and marhaba. You're listening to Medical Protection Podcast Real World Series. I'm your host, Jalen Simsek, and I will be co-hosting with Katie Grant, who is a medical legal lead for risk prevention. And today we'll be joined by a very special guest, Professor Hardeep Singh. Dr. Singh, would you like to introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on. My name is Hardeep Singh. I'm a general internist and a patient safety researcher at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I also work for the Department of Veterans Affairs in the U.S. Hardeep, thank you so much for introducing yourself. I'd like to start this episode by uh, relating to a previous episode that we recorded with Dr. Najib, um, who works in the secondary care, and he works as a consultant in the accident and emergency department. Uh, but actually, in this episode, we want to focus on primary care. So. My first question would be, could you tell us about diagnostic uh, in primary care setting and what the sort of global significance is uh, related to diagnostic errors in primary care are? Sure. So I started off my career as a primary care physician in uh, rural East Texas, and this was before I became a researcher. And I saw all types of patients. Uh, I still remember seeing patients who had missed colon cancer. Uh, they were getting shots of iron uh, for five years before they saw me. Um, I remember a young girl who came in with fever that was misdiagnosed by several of other clinicians. She had urinary tract infection. And then I quickly realized that there's a lot of things that in primary care we could miss because we have we see so many types of patients who are of different ages, different conditions. Some of them we have a relationship with and some we don't, uh, who may be relatively new. So I started focusing on studying diagnostic errors in primary care when I became a researcher. And when we did estimates of how common the problem is, it's actually fairly common. Uh, one of our studies, which was in ambulatory care, which is, you know, primary care, but also includes some specialty care settings, uh, but again, outpatients, estimated that one in 20 U.S. adults are going to have a missed or delayed diagnosis every year. And then, you know, over time, uh, we started looking at estimates from other countries. And of course, you know, there's not a lot of data available, but as I, I was able to collaborate with some colleagues in Manchester, uh, where we did a very rigorous study uh, looking at data from primary care and using similar methods uh, as the previous U.S. study that estimated you know about five percent, and guess what? We found about four percent in U.K. Um, you know, so it's very close to what we found in U.S. of five percent. So this is a common problem. Just imagine what we estimated in U.S. was twelve million adults will have a missed or delayed diagnosis every year. Not, not all of those will be harmful. Uh, you know, we see a lot of common conditions that are benign in primary care, but some of these could be serious conditions. You know, we've seen a whole host of conditions, cancers, infections, uh, cardiovascular conditions, migraines, and anemias. I mean, just a whole host of uh, diseases that can be missed in primary care. In fact, one of our big studies 
there were 67 different types of conditions in the 190 diagnostic errors we studied. Um, and the, the most common condition was like 6%, which means there were so many conditions. So it's not like you can fix the diagnosis of cancer and you'll fix primary care. It's because there are so many conditions we see um, that it's a sort of a generic problem that we need to take very seriously. And 12 million, you mentioned that number is quite a significant number. What, what do you think are the contributory factors uh, that cause these diagnostic errors? Yeah, so, you know, the contributory factors are, are immense. So, in general, we think about this in sort of two buckets, right? So, one is the clinician's thinking or the cognition, and that's where all the, the biases and the heuristics and uh, the knowledge gaps and uh, data gathering issues, data synthesis issues, all of those become quite relevant. Uh, but then there's systemic issues, right? So if I am under pressure to see patients in like, let's say 10 minutes, and there's productivity pressure on me, and if I miss a diagnosis because I wasn't able to do a thorough history or physical exam, well, is that a system problem or is that a cognitive problem, right? Or it's a bit of both, right? So what we've had over time is we sort of consolidate all these systems and cognitive problems and we think of them as one uh, because oftentimes they're related. Um, so system issues would include, like I mentioned, time pressures, productivity pressure, a lot of chaos in primary care settings, interruptions. Uh, how we use information, how we track information. Uh, we've had some issues with electronic health records in the US, I'm sure you all do too. Um, oftentimes information gets lost in the system, patients get lost. So I might see a patient, I might order a test that is abnormal, but I might not get the result back uh, because the systems to track these patients who have abnormal findings are not very robust. Um, then we can have issues related to referrals. So referrals can get lost. I might refer a patient to a urologist because I'm concerned they may have bladder cancer and because I saw them with hematuria, but for some reason, the patient never got seen by the urologist in six months or a year, and now they've got a bladder cancer that you know I missed or delayed diagnosis of. Same could be true for a chest X-ray patient. I order somebody's X-ray and the X-ray was abnormal and that got lost. Um, so there's a whole host of uh, features, communication, coordination, teamwork, system issues, thinking issues, biases, heuristics, um, overconfidence. We've actually seen overconfidence as a problem in one of our studies, um, uh, unable to manage uncertainty because we think we kind of know what we're doing sometimes, so we don't seek help. Um, and so that, I think it's a very prominent uh, problem in all types of uh, physicians. It's a known problem in all professional uh, professionals that have been studied. Uh, we often don't seek help when we most need it. So again, the list is long of contributory factors. Thanks. Uh, it's Katie here now. Um, I used to be an anaesthetist. Uh, so when things went wrong with our patients or when um, we had uh, an emergency, the, the diagnosis was pretty apparent quite quickly, or if we got it wrong, it was quite quickly apparent. But you've talked about uncertainty in primary care. And I think the burden of uncertainty that primary care physicians have to hold is immense, right? Um, and I'm interested, you described really the different stages there of the diagnostic process or perhaps steps where these errors could be made. Which of those 
uh, parts do you think is most significant? So is it the information we gather from the patients? Is it actually the tests we order? Is it the follow-up and the systems failings? Have you got any data or have you done any research on what part of that process perhaps is, is the biggest contributor to diagnostic error or delay? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so let me just for the listeners describe yeah. the five processes that right. we think yeah, thank you. When we think of the diagnostic process, we think of five processes. So let's just walk through. One is uh, sort of that classic consultation, mm -hmm. the GP patient consultation, where there's history taking, there's physical exam, yeah. maybe there's, you know, as a GP, I might order tests. The second process is that of test interpretation. So let's assume now I send the patient for an x-ray or I order a test that gets uh, read by uh, whoever that might be, a lab person or a pathologist or a radiologist. Um, so that's a performance and interpretation of the test. The third is follow-up and tracking of information. So now let's assume the test is abnormal. Maybe there's a PSA that is you know, 25, uh, that needs to be followed up. A chest x-ray that's abnormal, that needs to be followed up. So the third process is follow up and tracking of all this information that comes. The fourth process is a referral and consultation process where I make, I think you all call it referrals. Sometimes we, we call it referrals too, but sometimes we also call it consultation in the inpatient setting. But let's say I consult with my uh, cardiologist uh, colleague or an oncologist or a pulmonary specialist, that, that things can get lost there as well. So that's a fourth process. And then lastly, a central process lies with the patient because the patient has this journey that the patient goes through, through all of these processes, right? So they are central to the diagnostic process. So we have to think about patient behavior as patient adherence, uh, you know, so that becomes the fifth one. Now in our work, in primary care, we actually found that most of the diagnostic errors in primary care were coming from the consultation process. So the history and the physical exam, the data gathering and the data synthesis based on that. And what we found was it was sort of the basic clinical skills that were, you know, getting, um, I mean, were, were contributing to um, the, the problem. Um, we also have found tests getting lost to follow up quite yeah, commonly. We see that a lot, unfortunately, in our cases. Yeah, and yeah. I, would con I would say that's a second big category in primary care, so yeah. follow up and tracking of information. And sometimes that's very relevant for patients who are undergoing evaluation for cancer, right? Like you said, diagnosis unfolds over time. Yes. Evolves over time as the patient's diagnostic journey progresses and the patient moves between different systems and settings of care yeah. and information gets lost between those settings of care. Great. So really, you said the key part is the the information gathering uh, or via questioning or examination. And really, if, if, if we as doctors and clinicians are not collecting the right information, we're kind of we're never going to reach that right diagnosis. Is that is that I, fair enough? Absolutely. Or I'm a huge proponent. And yeah. sometimes people don't necessarily agree they say well we've got so many tests we're like no yeah I think uh, well I, I you know I'm sitting here thinking I'm in the big shiny hospital with all the beeping machines but intrinsically um it seems like the the primary care physicians are the ones you know they're, they're pretty much using their brain and their ears and their hands right they're not you know they they don't really rely on any kind of technology so yeah. what 
I mean, Jalen's going to explore a bit later about maybe strategies that our listeners can take on board. Can I just ask you a cheeky question? Um, yeah. How much do you think we can reduce these um, diagnostic delays down by? Because you said they're what was it, up between four and five percent compared to the US or UK. We sort of think in primary care, that's the number of, sort of diagnostic or cases that are misdiagnosed. Is that affect the proportion? Yeah, for, yeah, we got the number 4% from UK. Yeah. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that it's, um, <laughs> you know, because obviously you've got the patient involved, so that's another complete wild card. You've Absolutely. got labs, you've got yeah. um, email systems. You, we've got computer systems that don't talk to each other. So our hospital systems don't talk to the primary care yep. systems necessarily. I uh, still. Um, yeah, so I think how, do you, do you think that, you know, we can make inroads into this area? Because obviously, like Jalen says, 12, 12 million in the US. It's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. So, you know, realistically speaking, we're not going to get this down to zero. Um, I have increasingly moved away from uh, zero as an achievable aim, at least in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, and I think realistically, we we should be able to, over the next, you know, decade or so, try to aim for at least 50% reduction. We're not, this is not going to be an easy thing to solve. I'm not being too... Uh, aspirational. In fact, I'm being very realistic. I think there is lots of preventable harm in primary care. Overall, I think primary care, at least in the U.S., is underemphasized, understudied, um, underfunded. I think the research in safety in ambulatory care, primary care, is very weak. Uh, the evidence is still evolving. Uh, we don't have good infrastructure resources and personnel to help us fix patient safety in the primary care setting. I mean, think about, you know, at least in the hospitals, you've got the patient safety managers, at least in the US, yeah. a lot of hospitals are patient safety officers, there's, yes, there's safety layers, teams, layers. analytic teams, people who do RCAs, people who learn yeah. from all these investigations. But guess what? In primary care, we don't have those systems. So guess who gets a lot of data on primary care is malpractice you know, carriers, right? Because they see all these claims over time. So they say, oh, look, primary care has a problem with, you know, patient safety, but what's the investment in primary care? So I think it's going to be a difficult um, problem to fix uh, over time. So, but we should aim for half, Great. for sure. And is there, um, sometimes here, people tend to think that general practice is perhaps not the easy way out, but, you know, actually they're not doing the real medicine. But I think from what you said, if anything, if it sounds like the GPs, the family physicians are the guys who are sort of working out from the beginning what's going on. I mean, do you have that sense where sometimes doctors say, well, I want to see the specialist. <laughs> like they oh, always yeah. see GPs as someone who's just there to refer them. But of course, that's massively underselling what I think is an incredibly difficult job that I could not do, <laughs> if I'm honest with you. Well, I think in UK, GPs yeah. are more respected than they are in the US. Okay. <laughs> I think you, you all are you know, pay your GPs better and trust and maybe okay, your well, that's, that's one value. Positive, which what was that? That's one positive. Positive, um, yeah, it is. Right. Um, in in US, um, you know, there was this big report on primary care from the National Academy of Medicine a few years ago. I still yeah. don't know how primary care reform is happening. It's a few years out. Um, nothing much has changed that I'm aware of. Okay, so... Lots, lots of opportunity. So Absolutely. I might hand back to Jalen now, because I think Jalen probably, we want to think about what, what actually our listeners might be able to do to try and make some inroads into this 50% um, reduction we're all going to aim for. Yeah, actually, um, just uh, from listening to um, Hardeep, 
just from my work as a case manager, one of the things that we see is often malpractice claims happening um, due to these misdiagnoses. And I think it's quite important for our listeners who are working in primary care setting to find out if there's any strategies that they can uh, use to um, to prevent this or to reduce this, um, to reduce these happening. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to refer everybody to a paper we wrote in BMJ uh, last year about five strategies to achieve diagnostic excellence. And I'm going to quickly walk through the five and hopefully people can, you know, look at the paper for more details. Uh, one of the things we found is use of feedback. So uh, use of feedback means I learn about my own diagnostic performance through various sources. So this could be done through my own assessment. So I could go back and look at my cases and see how, how well I did last year on some patients, let's say with cancer that I may have diagnosed, or somebody else can tell me about, um, you know, the patients that I'm seeing. Um, the systems to deliver uh, feedback are not very robust. So we don't have good systems in which GPs can easily get feedback on their own cases. So we actually came up with a tool recently um, through the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality in the US called Calibrate DX. And what it does is it gives specific systematic strategies for clinicians of all types to collect feedback on their own diagnostic performance by themselves, perhaps working with a peer sometimes. Like I have a trusted peer, I wanna say, hey, what would you have done in this case? What would you have done for this patient? Would you have things done things differently? But it does need some time investment if you spend time gathering feedback on your own patients, right? Most of the time, GPs are just seeing patients throughout the day. When do you find time to do this feedback activity that we're sort of um, you know, recommending? But it's an important step because if you gather feedback on your own performance, you can calibrate better, you can learn, and then you can get better at what your performance, because we know athletes learn from feedback. We know musicians learn from feedback. Um, the people who tell us about weather learn from feedback. They know what happened. So, all these professions learn from feedback, but we don't in healthcare. The second thing we recommend is what we call bite-sized practice. Bite is in B-Y-T-E. Uh, it's a play on bite-size as in small size practice, just to spend few minutes a day doing cases. So we, uh, you know, all want to do exercise every day. We don't find always time, but maybe if we can make five or 10 minutes for a specific activity, which is very useful to us, and do it at least several times a week, it would be very good. So think of this as looking at cases online. So in this article, we provide many resources for clinicians to go and look at cases because these cases are real world vignettes where you can sort of practice without practicing it on a patient. So we advise this regularly. Uh, the third is uh, biases. So the biases could be implicit biases about a patient or you know other types of biases. And so then we think about ways you can de-bias yourself um, you know, so you don't fall into those traps. The fourth is making diagnosis a team sport. So all of this generally rests on the physician or the clinician in charge, but we got to think of nurses. We got to think of physical therapists as a part of the team. We got to think of patients as a part of a team all the other diagnostic specialties as part of our team, the specialists are a part of the team. So thinking of diagnosis, not just in a single physician's head, but something that is evolving across time and involves multiple people. So team making diagnosis a team sport is really important. And then lastly, critical thinking. 
So this is one thing we don't do very well. We don't teach it very well in uh, medical education. Critical thinking is really important. So if a patient is coming back to me and their migraine is not better, I'm thinking they have migraine, but they may not have migraine. They may have a brain tumor, but what are the clues that tells me? Maybe the wife has some information about the patient's behavior patterns. Uh, maybe the patient has had some other systemic symptoms such as weight loss. So I need to sort of challenge my own diagnosis to make sure that I'm not falling into a trap. So this critical thinking thing is really important. So it's just walked you through five processes. Now, you could say that a lot of this also should be on the system to improve. Now, these are the five things that we thought individuals can do, but there's a whole lot of things that the system people can do, the system that supports the GPs, NHS, whether it's called NHS, whether it's whoever has the organization where the GPs practice, that can also support the GPs in addition to these individual strategies. Thank you, Hardeep. You've mentioned a couple of options where we can explore on uh, diagnostic errors and how to reduce those. Uh, the first one that you mentioned was feedback. Um, in terms of our clinicians, some of them might be hesitant to approach colleagues to receive that feedback due to uh, fear of being blamed. Do you have any advice to our listeners about that? Yeah, you know, um, we have found this to be a problem, actually for several reasons. Uh, one of them is they might think about the blame issue, but also we know physicians are hesitant often to ask for help. Right. We did a study in which we uh, gave physicians both sort of easy cases as well as difficult cases in vignettes. And we thought that in difficult cases, their confidence will drop and they will ask for help. But when we did the analysis, we did not find that. So what happened was the confidence of the physician who was making a differential diagnosis stayed the same, regardless of how easy or difficult the case was. And in the difficult cases, even though the accuracy dropped dramatically, they didn't seek help. And so what, one of the things we've been saying is, this is because of what we call miscalibration. That means your accuracy and your confidence are not aligned. And what we need to do is to strive for better calibration. And one of the ways you can get better calibration is through feedback, because that's what psychology, uh, research from cognitive psychology shows that you can get better with feedback. Um, because you can calibrate better, and then you would be able to ask for help uh, when you most need it. So I think one is um, sort of realizing, if you look at your own performance, when you need help and becoming better calibrated about it. But then we also have to create the psychological safety around the clinician to make sure that this is considered the norm. It's not an exception. It is a norm asking for help. Uh, even if it's a curbside, what we call a curbside is, you know, just asking a peer, hey, what do you think about this? Um, you know, I'm seeing a patient right now. And there are several studies that have come out in trying to support that, you know, it's okay to ask for help um, and get the help that you need, whether it's from a consultant or whether it's from a peer. Um, but the larger question is the culture that we have in medicine of being sort of the heroes. And um, I think from the from sort of the hero concept, we need to sort of change that into becoming more reliable um, and, you know, making sure that asking for help is okay when you're uncertain. 
Um, we don't do a very good job with uncertainty in medicine. Uh, we are very uncomfortable and fearful of our, you know, uncertainty. So that also has to be, in, you know, um, changed over time. So anyway, psychological safety, working on how to manage and acknowledge uncertainty better, maybe communicating uncertainty to patients um, when it's needed um, and accepting it and making this a norm. And that's why the tool that I'm going to put in the chat, Calibrate DX, is useful because it makes the whole process of getting feedback a lot more systematic and makes it sort of the norm across the practice of the institution where this is. Can I ask, uh, Hardeep, I'm really interested by this overconfidence because I've certainly, uh, I've probably been of the underconfident, you know, imposter syndrome type of physician and I've certainly encountered, particularly in anaesthetics, you tend to get both ends of the spectrum. Have you encountered perhaps general practitioners who lack confidence in their diagnosis or their diagnostic skills? And if so, is there any evidence that they may be more defensive, for example, over ordering tests or investigations? Is, is that something you've seen in your work or does it tend to be the overconfidence? Well, you know, anecdotally, yes, but mm. we have not been able to sort of study. Uh, one of the problems, <laughs> believe it or not, mm. it's been hard to recruit physicians into our studies to get to the exact questions that you are referring to. Because I, mean, I guess they have to study, select themselves, do they? And well, yeah, and also you know, have to like go for, you know, friends of sing and you know things yeah, like try, try oh, no, yeah, because and, no one wants to put themselves forward in case you were like oh gosh I'm yeah so i mean <laughs> busy seeing patients yeah you know, why would they participate in research studies for yeah. people you know who it's may difficult or may to get the data so to know but that's a very interesting question mm. anecdotally we've seen that there's a lot of defensive medicine uh but at yeah. least in the u.s uh, you know a lot of it is based on the sort of the malpractice claim uh there's a lot yes. of news and the other thing we see in primary care is there is both underuse and overuse, right? So we're ordering all these useless vitamin D tests, for instance. Yeah. Um, we're ordering PSAs, for instance, in 85-year-olds. Yeah. So a lot of that is also happening in primary care. So we have the both the underuse and yeah. overuse problem both. And that's why we think the calibration is really the best way to kind of uh, combat both the yeah. underuse and the overuse. So, yeah, so it could be good for those people who think, am I ordering more? Uh, do I give antibiotics more often than my colleagues? Or do I, you know, exactly. am I send for an x-ray than not? Great. Yeah, um, so the feedback could be about both too. I mean, I'm yeah. was, of course, talking about diagnostic errors and missed and delayed, but the feedback yeah. could be about, wait, you know, you're ordering like uh, way too many vitamin D tests or yeah. you're ordering way too many PSAs. You're, you're the outlier and then you can yeah, look outlier, at, are you exactly. actually seeing patients who need it or... And can I ask one other question before I hand back to Jalen, which is about decision fatigue, which, again, I met some lovely anaesthetists the other day and they told me this is a thing at which I hadn't really um, grasped. So is this it's a phenomenon where as you go throughout the days, is it right GPs are more likely to do things like give antibiotics for a, uh, perhaps a, a, an upper risk which attracts infection because almost that you're less you're more risk averse as you get more tired and more fatigued. Is, is that a phenomenon or is that? So I'm, I'm going to have to get back on this and I'm pretty okay. sure there's a study that shows <laughs> what you are talking about. Uh, maybe I can quickly Google to find out, but there is a study that shows something like this, that you're more likely to do some of these things at the end of the day because of this. Yeah, it feels like whether it's a protective mechanism. And again, it's maybe something we can explore in our later episodes. Because I think, is it like an evolutionary thing where your brain thinks, like, I can't make any more decisions, so I'm going to take the safest option? 
um because i feel like as i got more tired perhaps the opposite happened i, yeah. I may have got more more not more risky but you might think yeah. i've done well, this all day you know what's the worst well, that can happen well the reason i remember this is yeah. and I, i'll have to uh this is not exactly what uh it was a cheeky uh, question just yeah cheeky. <laughs> but but the, the reason i remember something like this is because the press made a big deal out of it that if you want to go see your gp go in the morning yes, go in the morning <laughs> i mean also hopefully the queue will be less first thing but you never know do you um amazing thank you i'm gonna hand back to Jalen. i uh, appreciate that um that that was a great question and thank you for that um so in the first episode that we recorded with uh, Stephen Priestley he mentioned about artificial intelligence being utilized and technology being utilized to prevent diagnostic errors i do want to find out if you uh, have any ideas about how we can utilize technology on diagnostic errors and any advantages or disadvantages to that Okay, so you know, in general, technology should be an augmenter of a decision, right? So it shouldn't be replacing anything that we do. It should just help us in some way without you know making the decision for us. Um, with that said, primary care is a tricky area. I see that there's a lot of excitement about artificial intelligence. By the way, I'm all in for the usual technologies, the electronic health records, the patient portals, the usual things. I'm I'm all good with that. Um, but the question is artificial intelligence. I think that's where you want me to focus. And you know, the the value in radiology, pathology, dermatology, endoscopy, where there's pictures involved, is very clear because there's research coming out that shows how well the artificial intelligence performs as compared to you know like a clinician who's reading those films or pictures uh, or photographs human retinopathy for ophthalmologists. Um, the question is, what does AI do for the routine GP where most of the diagnostic errors are not to do with performance and interpretation of a test? Remember those five dimensions that I walked everybody through? It's not about the performance and interpretation of testing, but it's about history taking and exam and you know sort of follow-up of tracking of information so in that i'm a little less optimistic what ai can offer i do think people should use ai um, when there is a problem so for instance there are decision support engines or di differential diagnosis engines that i could put in some symptoms and i can get some ideas about what kinds of diseases and conditions this patient might have that I'm having trouble diagnosing. That would be a good use. But then I need to know when to seek help, right? But when the patient comes to me with a lot of these undifferentiated symptoms and I'm like, well, I think you may have this, I think you may have that. If I don't seek help from the computer then input their symptoms and get a differential out, then sort of what's the AI going to do, right? Because right now the AI is not smart enough that they are already integrated. Some people are trying to integrate it, integrate the AI systems with the electronic records so that once you put in the patient's symptoms, the engine automatically gives some kind of a differential choices. But to me, that's still in research and development mode. I don't think it's in practice. I don't know about Maybe in UK practices, some places are doing it now, but certainly here it's not happening routinely. Um, we've actually done a study where patients have used a differential diagnosis generator and they found it useful. So we asked patients, hey, you know, before you went to the GP, it looks like you used this system and did you find it useful? And sure enough, like about half the patients said in the survey, 
that they found some use from this differential diagnosis generator um, where they input their symptoms and the artificial intelligence based um, you know differential diagnosis engine gives them some suggestions like you may have this you may have that um, so those things could be useful yeah, um, that that's quite fascinating to see how how the technology develops in that area. But it doesn't sound like artificial intelligence is taking away any jobs soon. Um, not for primary for, care. I don't think not for primary think, care. <laughs> um, so we're approaching towards the end of our episode. Um, I do want to just ask a final question. Do you have any advice or message to our listeners before we close off for today? Um, well. There's a couple of things. I mean, I think um, if you're a clinician, I mean, the most important advice is you gotta keep reading and you have to seek help. Um, I cannot emphasize enough the power of, you know, knowledge and data gathering um, and listening to sort of the patient. Uh, we have often seen, um, and, and I think it's, a little bit of is about humility, right? So you know how to deal with uncertainty. You know that you have to listen to the patient. You know your knowledge limitations. You know your knowledge application limitations. Um, one of the things we uh, hear from patients is one of the most common reasons they think they were misdiagnosed were because the physician didn't listen to them, despite them telling them the same symptoms. So all of that sort of that humility part or listening to the patient comes from various um, sort of sources of information about yourself. So getting feedback, calibrating better, uh, adjusting sort of your confidence, um, reading to make you more humble because you realize, oh my God, so this, you know, I, I, you need to keep up you, because with time you sort of lose touch with, um, with sort of the current knowledge and, and i think if if all of these things are done so it's not one message it's multiple but i think if all of these things are done uh, you can strive towards diagnostic excellence thank you thank you so much for for joining us today as well dr singh that's been very helpful um so i think there's a quite a lot mentioned in there but we are leaving it on a very useful note where clinicians or listeners can also take away and act, take action on. Katie, did you have any further questions for Dr. Singh? No, I think I've just been writing down, stop, calibrate and listen, um, <laughs> which I think is ripping off a song, isn't it? But anyway, I think, yeah, the, the things <laughs> I would take is, is calibrating, which I think is really useful because it's particularly when you work on your own in primary care, how often do you actually see what your colleagues do? How often do you know, you know, how do you manage this? What do you do if somebody presents with X, Y, Z? So I think yeah. that and the feedback, yeah, like Jalen says, we often, you know, doctors sometimes find it quite difficult to ask for feedback for fear, not only of being blamed, but also sometimes patient, you know, sometimes we're not very good at being told good job, I think. And so, um, yeah, I think that's my, what I've taken from this calibration with your colleagues and also not being afraid to get that feedback and continuous learning. It's been great. Thank you. Super interesting. With that, we've reached the end of today's podcast. You never know what's coming through the door next. If you'd like a certificate for listening to go towards your CPD or to learn more about what we covered today and who you were listening to, please do look at the podcast description. I've been your host, Jalen Simsek. Have a good day.